Thank you, Elder Louis. What a joy to be here in this beautiful place and see your smiling faces here on this Friday morning. And all week long, speakers have been talking about seeking His face. Is there anything more we can say about it? Sure there is. Go to John, who says... We have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. We have seen his glory. John says, we have seen. Who is the we? Well, it must be the first believers. We have seen. But they saw more than the physical face of Jesus. They also saw his glory. They saw his glory. Can we today see his glory? even though we do not see his physical face yet? Do we get to only seek his face? Or do we also get to see his face, his glory? What does it mean to see the glory of Jesus? Well, when we get that all figured out, it'll be lunchtime. (laughs) Not really, but let's, let's find out a few answers to these questions. Let's wrestle with it. Let's allow the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of our hearts that we might see His glory. So, to find some answers, we go all the way back to the beginning, to the Garden of Eden. And I found an author by the name of of Sally uh, Lloyd-Jones, who has a special gift in, in writing Bible stories for children to understand. Are there some children here today? All of us are children in some way. So here's how she writes it, very talented way of writing it. We're in the Garden of Eden, and she says, she writes, From the beginning, God had a shining dream in his heart. He would make people to share his forever happiness. They would be his children And the world would be their perfect home. I like her style already. She writes, so God breathed life into Adam and Eve. And when they opened their eyes, the first thing they saw was God's face. And when God saw them, he was like a new dad. Perfect, he said. 
And they were. God said, you're the most beautiful thing I have ever made. You're like me. They were lovely because God loved them. And whatever happened, whatever it cost him, he would always, always love them. And nothing could ever, ever separate them from the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love of God. Adam and Eve were awestruck. They were in wonder of their God, looking into his face. Then something very tragic happened. And they no longer saw his face. They could only say to their children and grandchildren, there was a time when we were able to see God's glory. What, what's his glory like, Grandpa? What's his face like, Grandma? It's not something words can describe or explain. You have to experience it, my child. You must experience it. It's like when you love somebody with all your heart. You cannot explain it. You just know. You just know when it's no longer there. Well, wonderfully, God came up with a plan. A plan to make his love story even better than it ever was. That's why John, the apostle, could say what nobody could say since Adam and Eve. We have seen his glory. That's why John could say that. It's as if John is saying, after such a long time, we humans have once again seen God's glory. I have a question for you to ponder. Did the apostles see more than Adam and Eve saw? We have seen his glory. Did they see more? Well, to answer that, let's look at religion. You know, all religions have gods or a god, and all those religions tell their followers to, to seek their god or their gods. And so the followers go to work. They would do something very good or bring something very valuable to present to their, their god, their, their heart to please God, to get his favor. That's what religions do. But the God of the Bible is very, very different. Even though there are many Christians, sad to say, that think that he is so demanding that they must do good things to win his favor. He says he's a God of love, but he really does demand good deeds, good character, good behavior before he will bestow his favor 
Unfortunately, many God, many Christians see it that way, and some of you may have thought that way somehow, because our culture tends to train our thinking in that direction. You always get what you deserve. You always have to earn what you receive. The God of the Bible knows that fallen humanity does not seek him. And Romans 3 says, no one is seeking God. No one. And so what does God do? God came seeking Adam and Eve while they were hiding from him. All they knew was what they saw in God's face. Now they're hiding from him. Not seeking him. God comes seeking them. And God came seeking fallen humanity when Jesus came to what? Seek and save the lost. That's all of us. So who did the seeking? Who does the seeking? It's God. It's God who does the seeking. I came across this very beautiful statement which I, I want to be part of my mind forever. And that is that Jesus is more than a prophet who came to tell us what we should do to find God. No, Jesus came as God to find us. Jesus is God himself who came to find us instead of telling us what we should do to find him. I love that statement. Now, it gets a little complicated because uh, the prophet Jeremiah comes up with a statement, a beautiful statement. He says, you will, this is God speaking through Jeremiah, the prophet, you will seek, talking to us, you will seek me, God, and find me when you seek him, seek me with all your heart. So there it seems like God is saying, no, it's all about you seeking me. So what is it? God seeking us or we seeking God? The answer is yes. That's always a (laughs) cop-out. And yet it's true. Because the fact is, friend, take it to your heart. You only seek God when God has found you. And then when you are found, you want to seek him because you want more of him. Not to discover him. He discovers you. You seek him not to find him, but to enjoy him. You can't get enough of him. You have a perpetual thirst for God. Cannot get enough. Ever played hide and seek with a four-year-old? You're told that you must hide, and so you hide, but you know you are going to make sure that you're going to be found. And when you are found, (laughs) the four-year-old discovers you like you were lost, and he found you 
What do you have? Shrieks of delight. And you're told to hide again and again and again so that you can be found again and again so that the shrieking and the delight will go on forever and ever. There's no hardship in that seeking because the one who is seeking you has already been found before seeking you. And so Psalm 42 says, as a deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. So the panting and the yearning and the desiring and the thirsting, the longing for, all this is descriptive of us seeking God, seeking God. Because we are found. That yearning is not something we come up with. That yearning for God is something he gives us. You're not capable of generating a desire for God. He creates that desire in your heart. All you know is you are missing something. All you know is you are missing something. And even when it seems that God is far away, you can say, a sense of your absence, God, is a mark of your presence. And if you hang your head and say, oh, how I want this. Oh, how I want to have a yearning for God. That's good. That's a sign that you're on, going in the right direction because a sense of your absence, God, is a mark of your presence. So what do you see when you see his face? Moses asked God once, remember there in Exodus 33? He said, God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. God said to him in verse 20, You cannot see my face. No one may see me and live. Do you see how that in that passage, seeking his face and his glory are used interchangeably? It's the same thing in many ways. But here Moses he wants to see God's glory, and God says, you cannot see my face and live. So what is in God's face that is deadly? Or is it the dirt on our face? When you seek God's face, do you have egg on your face because you're embarrassed by all the wrongs of your life? Do you expect to get a slap on your face because you're guilty of not shaping up? Do you feel that you have to face up to your failures and when you're seeking God's face? Do you feel that you lose face if you don't speak and act correctly? Do you feel nervous about your mistakes and then fall flat on your face? You feel you have to plead for mercy until you are blue in the face. And if you say yes to any of those, I'm afraid you've been looking for the wrong face. 
You've been looking at the wrong face, thinking you have to clean up your face before you can see his face. But isn't that what the Bible does say? What do you need in order to see God? Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 8, God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will what? See God. So I've got to go about cleaning up my heart. No. No. You cannot. You cannot clean your heart. Would you like to know how to have a clean heart so that you may see his face? If you then receive that clean heart, will you believe that you can see his face? How do we get that clean, pure heart? Well, Psalm 63 tells us. If you're flipping in your Bible, you'll go to verse 1 of Psalm 63, and there David says, he says to God, You, God, are my God, earnestly I seek you. So before he seeks God, God is already his God. God has already found him. Therefore, he says, I seek you. And where does he go to seek God? Verse 2, it says, I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Where? In the sanctuary. So when King David went into the tabernacle, he saw sacrifices, and he meditated on those lambs, those sacrifices that were slain, that were bleeding for him in his place. He meditated on that, and that's where he saw God's glory. Somehow, in this sacrificial system, and the things happening there with blood all the way from the beginning, all the way down to the very presence of God on the Day of Atonement, all of that blood was somehow helping him to see what? God's glory. That's what he saw in the sanctuary. God's glory. Wow. Because the sanctuary was the place where the grace of God was given. That's the whole point of it. Where God's forgiving Mercy and grace is experienced where the beauty of God is seen. No place showed the beauty of God more than the sanctuary. Not just because it was colorful on the inside. It's because of what happened there. It's because of the meaning of those sacrificial lambs. That's where he saw his glory. And when you and I go to the sanctuary... Where do we go, really? We go to the cross. Because everything that the sanctuary stood for pointed to the cross of Jesus. Everything. We go to the cross. Because that's the cross of Jesus, where Jesus fulfilled everything of the sanctuary, that is where we see God's costly grace, where we experience his costly grace. That's where we see God's face. That's where we see God's glory. That's where we see God's beauty. That's when the scales are removed from our eyes and we are given a pure heart. Let's see it in the scriptures again. Because the cross of Jesus Christ 
is the only place you go to find how God removed separation from God for all time, once and for all. Separation from him is removed at the cross. Let's find out what Scripture says. I invite you to go to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 from verse 20, where it says, God made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Verse 21, this includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now, he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. Get this now. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. You have a pure heart given to you by a gracious God. God gives it when you trust in the cross of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's it. The cruelest aspect of the suffering of Christ on the cross was not the human mockery, the slaps on his face, the spit on his face, the, whip, the whipping, the nails. That's not the cruelest part of what Jesus experienced on the cross. Not by a long shot. The most horrible moment for Jesus on the cross was when he cried out, My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? That's what was hardest for Jesus. And those words of grief expressed from Jesus, exploding from Jesus, echoed back all the way to, yes, what happened in the Garden of Eden, to that rebellion of Adam and Eve that separated them from the God who created them so that they would always look upon his face with no separation. And the deepest need of all humanity, from that point on, from what happened in the Garden of Eden, the deepest need of all humanity from that point on has been that they would once again be united with God so that they could see his face, live in his presence, and have an inseparable bond with him. But for thousands of years, that went by, Year after year, each year that separation just got wider and worsened more and more. Until Jesus came. And Jesus, get this friend, Jesus willingly suffered the Father's back so that you can see his face. And because Jesus was willing to endure that terrible pain of the Father's judgment on sin, you and I will never again see the back of God's head. Never. 
as God's reconciled child then, everything is different for you. It says he brought you into his own presence. He adopted you as his child into his own family. Now you have only his smile at you. He's always smiling at you. His favor is towards you. Only because Jesus bore all that which separated you from him. And that is true. On your worst day, it's true even on your best day. Look to God and see his smile. He's smiling on you. His favor is shown to you. You say, my record doesn't allow that. It just doesn't fit. There's a disconnect. Yes, except for Jesus who took that record upon himself, removed it as if it never existed so that you can no longer think of your record, no longer think of your failings, your weaknesses. You can only now think of the gifts of God's grace that you have his smile on his face towards you. Can you live your life like that? It's life-changing. It's totally life-changing. Look into his face of grace and you will see his glory. It's not that hard. Look into his face of grace and you'll see his glory. And as long and as often as you look at the cross of Calvary and repeatedly you want to say, Oh, my father loves me. My father favors me. My father has forgiven me. He delights in me. I have his approval. I have his smile. I adore his beauty. God is beautiful, not just holy. God is for me. He's not just my judge. God is in me. He's not just beyond me. I enjoy God. I enjoy him only because of his grace. Not because I have lowered him down to my level. Not that I have recreated him into my image. Not that I have done away with the standards. No, I enjoy God because God has upheld the standard and given me freedom in Christ Jesus. I enjoy God. He gives me pleasure. He satisfies me. In college, I had to take a course called Music Appreciation. I was assigned the task of uh, listening to recordings. You know, those vinyl recordings. This is way back. You put it on the turntable and you listen. A little crackly when that vinyl gets old. You know that story. And I was given the assignment to listen to the musicians that I knew very vaguely. I knew the name kind of vaguely only because I, I knew the Beatles, but I didn't know Beethoven. You also went through the 60s, didn't you? Yeah. And I dutifully listened to that music of Beethoven and others 
dutifully because, you see, I was earning a grade. I, I wanted to graduate. So it was a functional thing for me to go through the motions, to listen to that music and to, well, I earned a, an A. I worked hard, you know. It was all functional. Not much enjoyment in it, except for the A part. A few years later, after graduation, the sounds of that music again came back to me, and I had a desire to hear it again. This time, not to earn any grade. So I went down to the library, and I would borrow these records, these vinyl records, and put them on a turntable, and I would listen to the same music over and over again to delight in it, enjoy it. Now I found pleasure in it. Now it began to grow on me. Now it was something that I, I needed and relished in and became a pleasure. Now when I go into Spotify, it's very easy for me just to click on that music mix called Beethoven and many others. Because now I enjoy it. I ask you, have you ever said, God, I enjoy you. You are beautiful. I can't stop gazing at you. Until then, friend, it's all mechanical. It's all functional. God is only useful and he's not anything else but a means to an end. Do you enjoy God? Do you enjoy him? To see his beauty, we can once again go to scripture and look at another example, Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah was given a vision, Zechariah is the prophet, he's given a vision of the high priest who is standing before the holy presence of God before the face of God, the presence of God in the temple on the Day of Atonement. That's the setting. But I want you to get the background a little bit here because the week before the Day of Atonement, the high priest would live in the, in the courts of the temple and he would spend his time representing all the people preparing for that day of atonement. He would spend his time praying, reading scripture, bathing himself to cleanse himself. He would do that religiously to prepare for the moment when he would stand before the Shekinah glory, the face of God, and be accepted to be pure, to be holy before God. You get the picture. The night before, the night just before, the Day of Atonement, he would spend all night praying and reading Scripture, meditating. And then when the morning came, he would bathe himself ten times ritually to cleanse himself. And then he would put on this beautiful clothing, garments, and get a bowl and put in the blood of a sacrificial animal and take that into the Holy of Holies to stand before God and atone for the sins of the people, he is accepted before God. That's the idea. But in his vision, Prophet Zechariah 
sees the high priest standing before the face of God in filthy garments. The Hebrew actually says he is standing before God smeared in excrement. And Zechariah is astonished. How can this be? What does this mean? And he realizes that all that frantic effort for all week long and all night long, the night before, of that high priest to make himself pure, to make himself beautiful before the beautiful one, to stand before the face of God, all of that was for nothing. And the frantic efforts of that high priest to see the face of God is an analogy, my friends, of the way that we work trying to purify ourselves before God. All the good things we try, but we never get further than thinking, I wish I could do more. I wish I could be more. And Zechariah, looking at the high priest, smeared with excrement, wonders what's going to happen next. Will the sword of judgment come on him? No. He hears a voice. It's a voice of the Lord that says, I will send my righteous branch, and he will take away the sins of the people in a single day. And I will put clean garments on him and put a new turban on him. And he will enter the presence of the Lord. Ah, what's that a picture of? That's the good news of Jesus becoming our high priest. Jesus, our stand-in. And what is he like as our stand-in? Because he also, the night before he died, spent the night praying and meditating on Scripture. He didn't take a basin of blood. He took his own blood into the presence of God. He didn't wear costly, beautiful garments. He was stripped naked. He didn't have water to bathe in. He had spit hanging from his face. That's all he had. But the minute he died, The judgment sword fell on him so that it wouldn't fall on us. The minute he died, the veil in the temple broke apart from top to bottom. And the separation from the face of God was done away with. That fallen humanity now could see the face of God. Because Jesus died. Oh, friends, nothing, nothing is more beautiful than divine sacrificial love. Shall we, shall we then f- not flood our minds and fill our hearts with Calvary, where we go to see his glory? Because that's where we'll see the beauty of his face.
There's a little old lady who said we ought to spend a thoughtful hour every day on these final scenes, scene after scene, there at Calvary, looking at Jesus. Because when you do that, you see his grace, you see his beauty, you see Jesus. And you become like Jesus. I've discovered that as we get older, <laughs> we lose the physical beauty we once had. Have you noticed that? Yeah. Someone said, when you're young, you look like your dreams, but when you're old, you look like your decisions. <laughs> that means that your beauty is no more, and you need the beauty of someone else. And that is so true that the beauty of your God is what you have, not just need. It reflects from you. Let the beauty of Jesus be seen in me, says the song. It doesn't happen unless we keep looking at his beauty. And it does happen when we keep looking at his beauty. So my plea to you is, go to the gospel, the gospel of God's grace, at the cross of Jesus, seek his face there. And you will see his glory more and more. And his glory will reflect from you. Shall we pray? May the God who smiles upon you May the God who gives you his favor, may the God who has done all to make you his own again and has made his love story even better than it ever was, may you revel, rejoice in, take pleasure in and be satisfied by his gift, his glory his Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. Amen.